call to worship this morning from Revelation 19. Remain standing, I'll let you sit in a moment. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. You, you got to stand for a, a victory parade. You can't sit down for that. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of lords. Be seated. Lord, we come before you this morning, and it is for us and for our salvation that you endured your incarnation, your humiliation, your active and passive obedience to the Father, your death, and it is for us that you rose again. It is for us that you ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It is for us that you will come one day to judge the living and the dead and to vindicate your righteousness and your people. Death could not hold you because you had done no wrong. The death that you tasted was on account of the sins which the Father laid upon you, our sins. And so the death you died was an alien death. And you submitted to it so that we might live. Father, we praise you. Because what else could we do but praise you, a God like that? We confess to you our sins, our faults, our shortcomings, our self-absorption. We confess to you our attempts to get at some good thing which you have withheld from us by unlawful means. We confess to you, O oh Lord, our pride, our vanity, our stubbornness. We confess to you our fear. We confess to you, O oh Lord our complete unworthiness. Come and clothe us in the grace of Jesus Christ so that we might lift up our heads to the throne and sing praises to the Lamb. Hallelujah, Lord. You have risen indeed. Amen. Our confession of faith this morning, shorter catechism, question 67. We are moving on now to the sixth commandment. Which is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. Well, since we uh, had our children's catechism recitation already, we'll just go right into the congregational prayer. Father, 
we would be brief this morning, for there is muchness and manyness, and yet we also would not uh, wish to rush the worship of the people of God. We lay before you the things which concern us on this Easter day. We lift up our nation, shuddering and heaving in great confusion, captive to ideologies on the right and the left that have some overlap with the things that you say, but nothing to do with you. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would forgive us for thinking that worldly princes and strength of arms and human cunning and money and manipulation can bring about the righteousness that is required. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would look with mercy and compassion upon us as we grieve losses, as we wrestle with sins, as we hold relationships together that are fraying at the edges, as we endure illness and humiliation, as we endure things which make us afraid. We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself strong, that we would realize at the depths of our being that there is a God that we can rely on because you are everywhere, you are all-powerful, and you are ever so kindly disposed towards us. And there's literally nothing that can happen to us that you can't redeem, that you won't walk with us through, very often that you won't protect us from, and we don't even know that you've protected us from it. Oh, Lord, pull back the veil and show us the heavenlies and show us your glory and show us that we are in an absolutely safe place to be in this world in your hands. It is in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Uh, the deacons are going to come forward and bring our offering, and let's uh, just stand and sing the doxology together, shall we? sound good this morning. You should, you should take encouragement from that. Uh, our scriptures this morning, we're back in the book of Ephesians for Easter. Can you believe it? I managed to pull that off. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't shoehorn it into the verses we're supposed to be in Ephesians, but I managed to get us back into Ephesians for Easter. So Ephesians 1 verses 16 through 22, and then a little bit out of chapter 4. Ephesians 1 16. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under the feet, under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then from chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but the, that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Lofty, lofty speech. Father, we come before you this morning on this day of the resurrection, and we thank you, and we ask that you would write these things on our hearts and in an indelible ink, that we would profit from them. That they would not simply be mere facts that we learned in Sunday school a long time ago and ho-hum, and everybody knows that. But rather, O oh Lord, that these words would be printed in flames. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, this might come as something of a shock to you, but um, my two least favorite times to preach are Christmas and Easter. And not because I don't like the, the subject matter, not at all. It's because it's so hard to say something to people that doesn't just kind of roll right over them and go, yeah, 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 we've heard that every year. And uh, that's okay, fine. No. All of Christendom this morning, except the eastern half of the church, is, is gathered in their various churches this morning to celebrate this pivotal event of all of human history. And there are hundreds of thousands of sermons ringing out into millions of years today. There are sermons in Hindi and Russian and Mandarin and Spanish and Portuguese and English. As men and women from every nation, every tribe, every language, hear about the most important thing that ever happened in human history the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus died and rose again? That is the greatest issue. And the second issue is, how do you explain what it means 
in a 25-minute sermon. Well, let me do something backwards from what I usually do. Usually, I try and tell you what the Bible means in a certain passage, and then I try and tell you what it means to you. But the resurrection of Christ is so big and so important and also so familiar that it's been reduced to stale platitudes and trite sayings fit only for small children. And we are commanded to grow up into him who is the head and to put away childish things. And that includes childish theology. So what does it mean to you? If you are sitting here this morning amidst the people of God in their worship as a born-again Christian, elect of God, according to Ephesians chapter 1, chosen in love in him before the foundation of the world. What does that mean to you? Well, I want to preface my words today by begging you to notice that in the call to worship this morning, we were presented with a picture of a second triumphal entry by King Jesus into a holy city. Last week, we looked at the first triumphal entry. Jesus came into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday to the cries of Hoshana, son of David. Hoshana. It was, to the eyes of flesh, probably a fairly pathetic spectacle. Here is a homeless man sitting on a borrowed donkey who is treading on old clothing belonging to poor people and palm branches with the cries of a small rabble, many of whom would be shrieking, crucify him in another five days. So with the eyes of flesh, that event looked very unimpressive. But in the real world, in the solid and lasting world, which is a world that is invisible to us right now while we are in eyes of flesh, the world of truth and light, we find that there is a second triumphal entry some 45 days after the first one. And Ephesians 4.8 gives us a brief glimpse. Our conquering king ascends to the holy city and the book of Revelation speaks of him riding a white horse. You will perhaps remember last week that the main point of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was that he was riding not on a horse, an instrument of war, a weapon of war, but on a donkey. In obedience to the prophecy of Zechariah, he came lowly and humble and riding on a donkey. He could be recognized or not. And mostly, it was not. But now he sits on a white horse, and he who sits on the white horse wears crowns, diadems of finest gold. He carries in his hand a rod of iron, and a sharp sword comes from his mouth. On his blood-dipped robe is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And like the victory parade of the emperor Titus, who conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, we mentioned that last week, this conquering king leads a massive number of captives. He leads his enemies 
that he has subdued in battle. And what sort of enemy does he leave behind him in these chains? Well, the Bible tells us. Every foul and unclean spirit in existence has been conquered, for one. All of the demonic spirits are chained together behind our mighty prince. Their rebellion is crushed. They may no longer freely torment and harass the people of God. And as they are led behind him, they glare in impotent hate at our king and at his people who cheer him along the way. But they also tremble with fear. For their destiny, says the scripture, is a lake of unquenchable fire. What else is in the train, the captive train? Well, sin and death are also defeated. They are foes who are being dragged along in chains. They too, says the book of Revelation, will be cast into the lake of fire. And who else? Well, those who have made themselves at enmity with God. The rebellious and the reprobate men and women who spend their lives hating the king, trying to cast off and avoid his rule. They too are captive. They, too, are bound for the lake of fire. And what else do we see in this marvelous parade? Well, Ephesians 4.8 tells us that the conquering king gave gifts to men. And the picture is of the conquering king who parades the captives and the things which he has taken from the vanquished foe. And then at the end of the parade, he parcels out the treasures to his favored Subjects, you didn't think it was for nothing that Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, did you? He, the king, would also confer lands and titles and other tokens of appreciation and affection upon his chosen ones. Perhaps for their bravery, perhaps for their loyalty, perhaps for their cunning tactics in battle. And these would be brought forth to stand for a moment with the king while the king proclaimed their mighty deed to the watching crowd and exalted them in front of the roar of the crowd. But this is not the only passage which speaks of Christ giving something of overwhelming value to us. Ephesians 1.14 speaks of our inheritance. Ephesians 1.18 speaks of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So that's the first thing that the resurrection means to you, Christian. Your conquering king has vanquished all of the enemies of your soul. Enemies that would painfully wound you and then ultimately destroy you if they had the power. And in his victory celebration, he parades your vile foes in front of you who are rendered now harmless to you. And then he lavishes gifts upon you, his favored ones, 
while throngs of men and angels look on in wonder and love and celebration and praise. You are kings, queens, princes, princesses in the household of God. The second thing that the resurrection means is found in verses 19 and 20 of Ephesians chapter 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? That's a lot of words. It's kind of hard to hold on to the meaning of a lot of words, isn't it? And on top of that, you've got spiritual powers that are actively interested in veiling the words. God says no more, let them live. The resurrection of Christ was not the only resurrection from the dead that the Bible records, is it? Elijah raised the widow's son. Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son. The Lord Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. And he raised Lazarus, too. Now, to raise someone from the dead who had been gone hours, or in the case of Lazarus, days, is surely a marvelous demonstration of power. And if it were done, even the likes of Richard Dawkins would have to reconsider their militant and their destructive atheism. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was a whole different category of event. You see, when Jesus rose, he rose with the wounds that killed him still intact. His hands and his feet still retained the holes which were caused by the nails. He invited Thomas to put his hand in the hole in his side. He had deadly wounds, and yet he was alive and well. He was not surviving in spite of the wounds, but he was rather living around the wounds as though the wounds did not matter one single bit. And this is what makes it different. You see, this is a different kind of life. All of the other resurrections were a temporary restoration of the old kind of life. The widow's son, the Shunammite's son, the little girl who arose when Jesus said, Talitha kum, and Lazarus, they all died for a second time. Their rising was an amazing display of God's power, but it was not evident that anything about man's situation had fundamentally changed. Nor had nature's situation changed either, for that matter. Not so with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to C.S. Lewis from his book, Miracles. I heard a man say, the importance of the resurrection is that it gives evidence of survival, evidence that the human personality survives death. On that view, what happened to Christ would be what has always happened to all men, the difference being that Christ's, in Christ's case, we were privileged to see it happening. This is certainly not what the earliest Christian writers thought. Something perfectly new in the history of the universe had happened. Christ had defeated death. 
the door which had always been locked had for the very first time been forced open. This is something quite distinct from mere ghost survival. I don't mean that they disbelieved in ghost survival. On the contrary, they believed in it so firmly that on more than one occasion, Christ had to assure them that he was not a ghost. The point is that while believing in survival, they had yet regarded the resurrection as something totally different and new. The resurrection narratives are not a picture of survival after death. They record how a totally new mode of being has arisen in the universe. Something new had appeared in the universe, as new as the first coming of organic life. This man, after death, does not get divided into ghost and corpse. A new mode of being has arisen. That is the story. What are we going to make of it? The question is, I suppose, whether any hypothesis covers the facts so well as the Christian hypothesis. That hypothesis is that God has come down into the created universe, down into manhood, and come up again, pulling it up with him. The New Testament writers speak of Christ, as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of of the new creation, a new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Now what Paul asserts in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 is that that same power which was at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to transform him into a new kind of life in this world is also the same power that is at work in you transforming you. And just like death could not hold the Lord Jesus, death cannot hold you. It can't hold you. All of the forces of sin and all of the forces of decay may mark your life for a little while longer yet. They may be able to hold you under for a bit but they will not be able to do so for long. Why? Because the mighty power of God is at work within you, and that mighty power cannot be defeated. The outcome is sure. This is not an invitation from God to sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. This is an invitation from God, an encouragement from God, to unsheath your sword and to fling yourself into the heat of battle with a song in your heart, because you shall prevail. Lastly, finally, what does the resurrection mean to you? Well, Paul tells us that God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, and that he reigns with the absolute control and absolute authority that is far above all other rule, all other authority, all other power, all other dominion. He tells us that his name is above every name, 
both in this age and the age to come. He tells us that God has put all things under his feet, where he rules them with absolute control and absolute authority for the sake of the elect of Christ, the people of God. It's easy to look at our worldly existence and to feel a creeping sense of despair. We possess, as a people, very little prestige, and what prestige we have is rapidly being siphoned away. Increasingly, we are reviled and vilified and seen as the main obstacle to progress in civil society. We possess, as a people, very little political power. The political party which most of us identify with is doing its best to figure out how to fling us overboard without losing our votes. We seem to possess less and less social influence. And even our institutions, which have served as launching pads for cultural and social influences, our colleges and our seminaries and our associations and our denominations, seem to be collapsing slowly, as much from rot within as from assaults from without. And so you look around and you go, this doesn't look like a project that's going to end very well, this whole Christian thing. But that which we see is not that which is real. You see, this place right here where you are this morning is one of the most significant places in the world. Not the White House. Not the EU headquarters in Brussels. Not the Kremlin. Not the places we think of as influential and powerful. Not Harvard, not Stanford, not Yale, not Oxford or Cambridge. Here. And places just like it. Filled with people like us. Who are completely unimportant. You see, in the real economy of things, in the unseen world, in the place that is permanent, as opposed to this place, which is passing away, we are in a position of enormous privilege and power. What is our position in light of what is unseen? Well, I want you to experience that for yourself. Think about everything I've said this morning about who you are and who your God is, and then draw close to your God. Commune with him and find out. Gaze on him who is above all and discover that those who lord themselves over you are like small children trying to assert authority over one another in their playground games. What do you tell your children when they come home and say to you, Mary told me that I had to do such and such. And you say, who's Mary? She's another kid in my class. What do you say? You say, you don't need to listen to Mary. She's not your boss. We teach them a sort of contempt for that kind of nonsense. Children telling each other what to do. And so it is with you and all the other naughty little children on the playground of your life with you and your God. Human beings heap criticism and scorn on each other and attempt to control each other that way. You don't need to listen to that. 
You don't need to be moved by that one bit. Human beings also heap praises and awards on one another to try and manipulate one another and encourage people to do what they want them to do. Barack Obama won the Nobel Prize just for showing up in the White House. Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator, awarded himself three new medals for bravery and cleverness in his leadership of his people. Vladimir Putin, not too many years ago, staged a stunt whereby he dived into the sea and came up suddenly with archaeological treasures that the KGB had put there first for him to find. And they had the news cameras clicking away and shooting photos of him for the Russian uh, newspapers so that uh, he could be seen diving into the sea and discovering them. And we look at those sort of things and we laugh because they're trumpery and puffery and they're meaningless. But so are the rest of the worldly titles that we worry so much about. You see, the only titles that matter are the eternal ones given by God. The powerful have servants to assist them. You are being served right now by angelic beings sent by the king. I was sitting in my office before church started and one of my daughters was with me and she said, Dad, how many angels do you think there are in here? I said, I have no idea. At least one per person and then any other ones that the Lord sees fit to put here to do whatever it is they need to do. She said, sometimes I think I can feel them. The lords of this world live in large and expensive houses. You will dwell eternally in a house not made with human hands, whose glory and splendor you cannot even imagine. The world craves passing riches. You are rich in an eternal treasure. You see, the smallest and most insignificant of us is a being whose fate possesses a terrible importance. Angels and demons watch our every move with anxious interest. All of the events of this world revolve around you and your journey to the heavenlies, elect of God. That's what Jesus said. John 19, Father, John 17, sorry. Father, you have given me authority over all men so that I might bring those who you have given me safely home. It's for your sake, child of God, that empires rise and empires fall. It is for your sake that God himself spoke his word to prophets and apostles. It is for your sake that the world was created. It is for your sake that the grand drama of fall and redemption has been played out. It is for your sake that God himself was incarnated, lived, died, and rose. It is for your sake that the reprobate angels fell and Lucifer became Satan. It is for your sake that God raised up Pharaoh and all who came after him who were just like him. You see, Jesus did not come and die to attempt one single thing. He accomplished all he intended to do. He said, I have come to save my people from their sins. 
he died for his people. A tiny majority, or tiny minority rather, of human beings. According to Jesus, the vast, vast majority of humanity is now perishing and will perish. Narrow is the gate and straight is the road that leads to eternal life. And few there are who find it. You have been led through the narrow gate. By God's grace, your feet are on the straight path. You are the point of all of this. Think on these things and be different because of it. Amen. And amen. Well, we have another thing that is, <clears throat> in this particular form, exceptionally unimpressive and yet powerful. Your little toddler sippy cup communion. <laughs> 